Father, we ask now as we come to your word that you would speak. We are desperate to hear from you. We are not desperate to hear from any one of us. We, we have nothing to offer in and of ourselves. We open your holy book because we believe this is how you have chosen to disclose yourself. And so I pray that through your spirit this morning, through the proclamation of this word, that you would continue to speak through it, that you would speak right into each heart that's here this morning, that you would speak into our pain, that you would speak into our confusion, that you would speak into our lives where we feel lost, where we don't know what to do. Father, I pray that you would speak into our gladness, Speak into our joy. Father, we need you to speak. Because otherwise we are lost. Otherwise we are completely helpless and hopeless. Our hope this season is in the fact that the incarnation led to the cross. And as we look toward Easter, I pray that we would gain a full appreciation or maybe a fuller appreciation of what Jesus did for us and that we would look to his condescension and be ashamed of our pride. That we would look at his self-denial, his sacrifice. We would look at his suffering and that we would turn from all of the ways that we seek to exalt ourselves, all of the ways that we seek to gain the approval of men. Fathers, we open your word. We're coming because we're hungry. I pray that you would feed us, and I pray that your spirit would nourish us, and, and I pray that you would speak in your wisdom, in your power, in ways that I never could. I pray that you would protect me from getting in the way of what you want to do this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. If you have a copy of God's word, I wanna invite you to turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 15. All right, we're going to do something a little different. Don't get scared. I say it's different. We've, we've done it in the past year. We've been here for three and a half years. We've done this before, but it's going to sound scary. Are you ready? I'll give you a minute. I'll let you get to Luke 15 first, then I'll tell you. Luke 15. So we just finished Jonah last week. Um, our typical practice here at Trace Crossing is to walk through Bible books verse by verse from beginning to end. Um, we, we typically alternate genres and, and we want to continue that practice. We'll typically usually do like an Old Testament book in uh, the spring and then, you know, come fall or come next sermon series, however long that book 
takes us, we will switch. And we'll either switch genres and stay in the Old Testament or we'll switch to the New Testament and preach a genre that we were not in before. So if the last time we were in the New Testament, we were in Mark, then the next time we're in the New Testament, we'll, we'll go to First Peter, which is, which is what we did. We went to a different book. And so the next time we're in the New Testament, we'll move away from the general letters. Maybe we'll do one of Paul's letters, you know? And so that's our typical practice here. Um, occasionally, uh, we, we will have some standalone sermons. Um, but as, as we were looking at, at the calendar, you know, Easter's six weeks away, and, and we wanted to maximize these six weeks and, and not allow Easter to creep up on us. And so, like I said, we typically do this with Christmas. We don't allow Christmas to creep up on us. And how do we do that? We, we typically, you know, celebrate Advent and we, we have ser- a sermon series that will uh, kind of coincide with that. But we're going to do something a little different. You ready? It's a topical sermon series. Oh, no. Oh, no. A topical sermon series. Here's what that means. Get ready. We're going to look at themes. We're going to take a theme related to this Lent season and then go to the Bible and say, what place in the Bible really speaks to this theme? Now, don't worry. Take a deep breath. If you're, if you're, if you're kind of hyperventilating right now, this is not the church I came to. This is not the church I came to. Um, it's okay. All right? Listen. Listen, topical sermon series can still be faithful to the text, okay? We are not going to all of a sudden do eisegesis where I start with an idea in my head and then go and try to implant it in the text. We're still going to do exegesis where we look at a passage of scripture and show you what it says and then comment on it and apply it to our lives. It's the word that has authority, not anything that's in my head. Um, But we are gonna be topical. And so um, we're we're calling this series The Way of the Kingdom, The Way of the Kingdom. Um, Again, we're gonna be spending six weeks before Easter considering different kingdom principles um, that are either explicitly taught by Jesus or embodied by Jesus. So I guess it's not really as freewheeling as I said. We're going to probably stay within the Gospels um, for for most of these sermons. We may go to Philippians 2 for for the sermon on humility, Uh, but we're going to look at different kingdom principles that were either explicitly taught by Jesus or especially embodied by Jesus, because Jesus, we know, is the eternal Son of God, but in this state, when he is on earth, the theologians call it his state of humiliation, where he leaves the glory of his Father and he condescends, he comes down to us, even just the very act of taking on flesh. It's condescending. It's humiliating, in a sense, for God to take on human flesh. And he dwells with sinners, and he eats with them, and he laughs with them, and he lives with them, and he actually becomes subject to the consequences of the fall, which were not his fault. He he intentionally does that out of love for us. And so in Jesus's life, we see certain aspects, certain principles that as he brings his kingdom to bear on our lives, because as Jesus comes, he says, I've come and I've brought a new kingdom, a kingdom. And he calls people into it. And if you are a Christian in this room today, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so what we're gonna do over the next uh, six weeks is unpack six kingdom principles, Six kingdom principles. And so we're just asking questions like this. How should we live in the shadow of the cross? So we recognize that we live in a time that is 
where the kingdom has been inaugurated, right? Jesus has come. Jesus has paid for the penalty of our sins. Jesus has uh, he's been resurrected, and he has ascended, and he is at the right hand of the Father, but we are not with him. We are still here. And so the kingdom is here. We already are in the kingdom, but it's not as it will be. So it's a kingdom that's inaugurated, but it's not fully consummated yet. So the question is, how do we live in this in-between time? That's a question a lot of the New Testament seeks to answer, um, but we're going to be looking at things that Jesus actually did to show us. So just a simple question then, what should mark our lives as Christians? That's, that's what we're going to be considering over the next six weeks. What should mark our lives as Christians? And so just so you kind of know where we're going, we'll, we'll get this to you in another format. But um, over the next six weeks, we're going to unpack the following kingdom principles. And beginning this week with repentance. So the first kingdom principle we're going to emphasize is repentance. Uh, the second is suffering. The third is service. The fourth is self-denial. The fifth is humility. And the sixth is sacrifice. So repentance, suffering, service, self-denial, humility, and sacrifice. Now, here's what we're confident in. Genuine church growth, which we want, right? Like, we want to grow. We want to grow in number because we're reaching the city with the gospel. We want to grow um, in, in community and in fellowship and love for one another. We want to grow. We don't want to stay the same. We want to grow and see where we're, where we're going. Genuine church growth cannot happen where these specific principles are absent. We can do a lot of things. But if we are not a people who are willing to repent when we sin, we won't grow. We will stay the same. If we balk at the very idea of suffering, who would ever go to a difficult, unreached people group? Service. If service is not a priority, if it's not a principle by which you are living your life, guess what you're not going to do? You're not going to serve. And anyone who has served in any capacity in the church, I always hear the same thing back. I felt like I grew during that time. Even when you're not sitting and listening to a Bible study, we have that opportunity here whenever we serve with the kids. If you serve with the kids up here, you are not in a Bible study, all right? You're changing diapers, you know? Some of you know that all too well. But, but we grow. We grow when we serve. Self-denial. If you, if you are not a person who will deny yourself, if we ignore that kingdom principle, we can live by others, but if we ignore the, the kingdom principle of self-denial, we're constantly going to be bickering because we are holding on to dear life to our personal preferences. Humility. You can't grow. Our church can't grow if we're not marked by humility, if we're not pursuing humility, if we're a prideful people, and then sacrifice. If we're unwilling to sacrifice for one another, then our love for one another is very, very weak. So church growth can't happen. And then also, though, genuine church health can't be achieved without these principles. So that's where you have gospel doctrine, you know, coming in, not necessarily conflict, but meeting gospel culture. And Ray Ortland wrote a really important book. I think Landon actually led us through it a few semesters ago. It's called The Gospel or Gospel. It's a little green book in the Nine Mark series. Um, but in it, he talks about gospel doctrine and gospel culture and how if you have right doctrine, if you have doctrine that, that is faithful to the word, that it should inform your, your culture. But here's, here's the scary part. On paper, 
We can be very doctrinally sound and have an incredibly unhealthy church because our culture is toxic. Who cares if you believe in the doctrines of grace if there is not a culture of grace in the church? Who cares, you know? And so genuine church health depends on this this church culture that mirrors scripture in the same way that your doctrine mirrors scripture and reflects scripture. And so if these principles that we're gonna be unpacking, unpacking are incredibly practical, all right? Repentance, suffering, service, self-denial, humility, and sacrifice. That's, that's where we're going. This morning, though, we're beginning with repentance. And, and this was intentional. So the rest of them we could probably take in any order. We're going we're gonna to put sacrifice toward the end. That will actually probably be more of like a Good Friday service where we emphasize sacrifice. And, and in the middle, though, like, you know, suffering, self-denial, service, like we could talk about those in any week. We're starting with repentance because that's where Jesus starts, the first word of the kingdom is a word of repentance. If, if you look in Matthew 3, the first word of John the Baptist's ministry is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then what does it say as Jesus begins his ministry? What is, what is the first word that he is preaching and proclaiming everywhere he goes? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So we see two things. The kingdom of God is here. There's a kingdom here. There's a new way, a new world that I'm inaugurating with my very presence. I'm coming to bring this new way of life to bear and it begins with what? Repentance. It begins with repentance. So here's what that means. Personal renewal. If you don't like where you are, you're just upset. I'm upset with my life. I don't like the way I'm living it. I don't, I don't enjoy, well, if you're a believer, I don't enjoy you know, my walk with Jesus right now. It's, it's just not what it should be. I'm really frustrated. If you're not a believer and you're just like, I just don't like the trajectory of my life. Personal renewal can't happen without change, right? Like you have to change. If you don't like the trajectory of your life, you have to change. And so personal renewal, citywide revival if we want to see this city reached with the gospel, and then church rejuvenation, we want to see life in this church, it requires something. Each of those things require repentance. Repentance is the key, on the human side of things at least, to unlocking true change. True change in our hearts, true change in our homes, true change in this church, and true change in this city. It can't happen without repentance. It can't. You can, you can have the best plan for how you're going to parent all day long, but if you are an unrepentant person, it doesn't matter. I experience this almost daily with, with my kids. I teach them best when I model repentance and love and grace and mercy. It doesn't matter nearly as much what I teach them from the kitchen table in our quiet time which you know I just made that up we don't really have that with the kids you know in a quiet time but it can't happen without repentance repentance also if I feel like if you're if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus you need to hear this and if you are in this room and you are a believer and you have been for a long time you definitely need to hear this repentance is not just a special invitation to the lost okay we always we always think of it Oh, your friend doesn't know Jesus. They need to repent. They need to repent. How often do you wake up and look in the mirror and say, today you need to repent. 
you need to repent. Repentance is a daily responsibility for the found. Okay, so repentance isn't just a special invitation to the lost. Repentance is a daily responsibility for the found. Our lives should beat to the rhythm of repentance and faith. If you should be marked by anything, anything, you should be marked by repentance and faith, turning from your sin and looking to Jesus in faith. It isn't something that just happens one time at one moment, probably at a VBS for most Southern Baptists, right? I turned from my sin and I trusted in Jesus. All good. No, that's just the first time you'll do that. You should do it the next day. You should do it the next day. And 50 years later, you should do it again and again and again. Our lives should beat to the rhythm of repentance and faith. We're sinning and we turn from our sin and we look to Jesus in faith. All right, that was a long way to get to Luke 15. Luke 15. Um, Luke 15, then, since, since we're focusing on the theme of repentance, Luke 15 is a collection of three parables told by Jesus to highlight three things. The problem of sin, the compassion and mercy offered by God, and the response required by every one of us. All right, so each of these parables, you have the parable of the lost sheep, you have the parable of the lost coin, and then you have the parable of the lost son or the, the prodigal son or, you know, the compassionate father. You know, the emphasis is really on the father in, in this uh, parable. But you have three parables that basically have the same paradigm. And it's a little, a little different with each one, but they basically follow the same idea. Number one, we have lost our way. All right? So that's, that's what the parables are teaching. And so if you're unfamiliar with parables, parables were stories t- uh, told by Jesus for the purpose of teaching a lesson. All right, so these are not events that actually happened in time. And we, you know, I'll mention this a little bit later as we get into the nitty-gritty details. You don't really need to focus on the nitty-gritty details of what happened because these are stories meant to teach a lesson. But, but first, anyway, in each of these three parables, uh, the point is we've lost our way. We're lost. There's a lost sheep, a lost coin a lost son. But second, we can return home. We can return home. That which is lost can be found. Just the mere reality of it, okay? Just the mere fact, it can be found. It's not lost to the point that it is hopeless to find it. It can be found. You can return home. And then the third, the third point is, is the reason for that. And it's the, it's the most amazing part of each of these these stories, the point that's being taught is that God wants us to return home, that God runs after us, and that God rejoices over us when we do return. So we're lost. You've lost your way. You can come back. The reason you can come back is because God wants you to come back. And when you do come back, you, you realize God was the one who was running after you all along. And when you do come back, you find a father who is rejoicing over you. So this story, um, we're not going to look at the entire uh, parable. So we're only going to look through verse 24 this morning. We're going to look at verse 11 through verse 24. We're not really going to get into the older brother. Here we're only going to look at the the part of the story that emphasizes the son, because I, the, the son who left, because I believe that it is a great picture of what repentance actually is. And so 
so at, before I read this, I'll tell you where we're going. We're going we're gonna to use this story to emphasize three points, three points about repentance. First, we're going to emphasize the need for repentance. Second, we're going to emphasize the act of repentance itself. And then third, we're going to emphasize the result. So this, the prodigal son, the pro, parable of the prodigal son shows us our need for repentance it, it shows us what repentance actually looks like. We actually get a picture here of what repentance looks like. And then finally, we see the goal of repentance. What's the whole point of repentance? Why should we repent? And what should happen when we repent, both vertically in our relationship with God and horizontally in our relationship with others? All right, let's look at Luke 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. Of course, that's when it happens, right? After he spent everything. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that, came, that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And you notice he doesn't even get to finish his sentence. He doesn't even get to finish his thought. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. All right. We see, we see at least three things here that, that kind of give us an idea of what repentance looks like. The first thing we see is our need for repentance. So your, your first truth, if you're taking notes, would be because of our sin, we run from God and his kingdom. Because of our sin, we run from God and his kingdom. The whole reason we need to repent, the entire reason that Jesus says the only way to enter my kingdom is for you to repent is because we have sinned. You see, God created us to live with him. We were created for that. We were created to live with God. We were created to live for God according to his ways and we have departed. So it's as if we have left, just like the prodigal son. We've taken what, what gifts the father has given us and we have chosen to make our own way. We have chosen to do things according to our wisdom and we've left 
we have left. The, the call of repentance is a call to come home. And the reason that call is there is because we're not home. We, we've left. The son, he departs from his father's way and from his father's presence. He takes his inheritance and its profits and runs after his own way. You know, it, we see here, we don't know exactly what the inheritance was. We know it was probably some property. We know it was probably some livestock and, and, and things of that nature. And it didn't take him any time to sell all that stuff off and take the profits and go somewhere else. He was done with his father. He's basically saying to his father, I, I, wish, I wish you were dead because that's the only way you get an inheritance at that time. He's like, I want it early. I have nothing more to offer you. You have nothing more to offer me. I'm done with you. I'm done with this family. I'm out. And his father gives in. He gives him everything that, that he's asked for. And he leaves. He's gone. Now, it's not just unbelievers who run from God. Believers run from God too. We've seen, we've seen that in Jonah. We, we, we both run from God. So, two, two things to remember here. Repentance is necessary for entry into God's kingdom. We know this. Repentance is necessary for entry into God's kingdom. You're not in God's kingdom by nature. All right? We're not born into God's kingdom because we're born to Christians or we're born in America or, or we've grown up in the church. It's not a birthright to, to be in the kingdom of God. You have to be reborn into the kingdom of God. We, we are not by nature citizens of God's kingdom. We are by nature enemies of God's kingdom. We are by nature rebels who have fled away from God's kingdom. Um, Thomas Watson says it like this, the two great graces essential to a saint in, his, in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven, faith and repentance. You can't get in unless you repent, but it makes sense, right? Because we've all gone astray. We've gone astray. We're not in the kingdom. So it makes sense. The only way for you to get in the kingdom, the only way for you to get home is for you to turn around and come back. That's the call of repentance. Turn around and come back home. You have gone astray. And we all by nature run. But repentance isn't just necessary for entry into God's kingdom. Repentance is also necessary for perseverance in God's kingdom. It's only those who persevere to the end who will be saved. There are plenty of people who profess faith in Christ at one time and then renounce him later. It's those who persevere to the end that will be saved. Martin Luther said it like this. This was, you know, if, if you're familiar with Martin Luther, uh, just the great reformer and his 95 theses that he nailed on the church door in Germany. Uh, he, he's the very first of those theses. I don't even know if you've ever read them, but the very first one says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Our entire lives. Repentance should mark our lives as citizens of God's kingdom because sin continues to dwell in our hearts. It makes sense, right? Sin doesn't go away when you're baptized, right? I wish, I wish it worked that way. You know, I wish when you were baptized, just all of your sin just, just is left in there and then, you know, the cowards can just like uh, take all that water and just pour it outside and let it roll down that hill and uh, inf inf infect someone else but sorry <laughs> it's a little graphic um, but that's not how it works right sin continues to, to dwell inside our hearts and because we still have sin in our hearts our entire lives should be marked by repentance we should continue to return to God 
Why? Because we can't be pretenders. We know that throughout our lives, we will at times run from God again. And if you don't come to terms with that, if you don't actually sit and reflect on your life to see where you are, if you don't orient yourself to see where you are in relation to God, you may be very far from him and think you're very close to him. And if you think that you have no need to repent, that's exactly where you are. You have blinded yourself and you are so far from him that you've forgotten what it's like to be home. So we should continue to return to God because we continue to run to God and, or run from God, developing a habit of repentance is necessary for our lives. A habit. Think about it. Well, how do you develop a habit? You have to intentionally set to do something every single day. And, and I've used this illustration before, but you will not find one basketball coach or teacher, especially a shooting coach, who, who will ever say, well, yeah, it doesn't really matter how often you practice and it doesn't really matter how you shoot. You can, you can have one form one day and a different form the next day. No, it is abundantly clear. It has to say the same every single time. You have to figure out a free throw shooting routine. Some of you guys like see these players and they have these really weird free throw routines. It's because they're doing the same thing every single time. Whatever it is, taking the ball and putting it behind their head, it's all part of their routine. It's how they've developed a habit. It helps them become better shooters. And so how do we become people who will, by nature, not run from God, but when we run from God, by nature, return, repent? And then even in our own relationships, when we run from one another and sin against one another, how can we be the kind of people who will, by nature, once we recognize that we have run far away from God or that we have sinned against God or sinned against someone else, be the kind of people who will, by nature, turn and return home to reconcile? We have to develop a habit because habits form us into people who will run after, not away from God when we sin. When we sin, we are prone to run away. Think about it. In your own relationships. Isn't it so much easier to run away? It's so much easier. You sin against somebody, you just, you're done. You don't want to deal with it. These are awkward conversations. It's so much easier to run away. It's so much easier to flee. It's the same with God. It's so much easier to not come to him in confession and contrition. It's so much easier to just forget about it and let time heal all wounds, you know, and flee. But God calls us back to himself. We should develop a habit of repentance. You know, I see this with kids. Kids respond to parents in one of two ways, and some of you have experienced this. And we're already starting to. When kids see something they shouldn't see or do something they shouldn't do, they respond to their parents in one of two ways. They either hide from their parents or they look for their parents. It's just the way it works. Kids will either hide from their parents because they don't want them to know what they've seen or what they've done, or they have the kind of relationship with their parents that they will actually look for their parents when something like that happens because they have that level of trust. Now, it's, it's incumbent upon us as parents to have that kind of relationship with our kids, right? 
so that there is that level of trust, so that they do run to us and not away from us when there's trouble. But for us, for our lives as Christians, we have to just know the character of our father. What kind of father is he? He is a father who is fully trustworthy. He is a father who is fully loving. He is a father who is fully and completely forgiving and compassionate and kind. And so, as children who run from him, we can be encouraged that once we recognize we have run away from God, we can turn and return to him, to return home to him, to come back because we know how he will deal with us. We can be confident in his abundant, steadfast love toward us. So, Repentance is necessary for perseverance in God's kingdom. And I would encourage each of you to develop a habit of repentance. Even if there's the slight chance you have sinned against somebody in your circles, be quick to say, I'm sorry. Be quick to say, I shouldn't have done that. Or ask the question. Pursue that. Because the more you avoid those conversations, you will be moving slowly, don't want to trip over cords, slowly, slowly away from the person that you're in a relationship with. We won't persevere in God's kingdom unless we become people who repent. It's critical for our souls. All right, so because of our sin, we need to repent. Uh, Second truth, through repentance, we return to God and his kingdom. So by nature, because of our sin, We run from God and his kingdom. And you know, we never really know why we do that, but we do. It's just just in us to rebel. It's in us to sin. We, We don't know why. We didn't really choose this. It's just the way that we are because of the fall. And so by nature, we run away from God and his kingdom. And, but it's through repentance that we return to God and his kingdom. So look at, um, look at Luke 15 and look at verse, hang on, verse 17. So the son, he's taken what you know, was owed to him at his father's death, but his father gave it to him early, his inheritance, and he ran away, and then he gets in trouble, right? He spends all of his money, and now he, now he has nothing. Um, and then a famine comes, and now he's in real trouble, and he's desperate, So he hires himself out to one of the citizens in the country and he starts feeding pigs, which, you know, is fine, except he would have loved to just be eating what the pigs were eating. And he, but in verse 17, there's this phrase, when he came to himself, all of a sudden the son comes to his senses He comes to himself. He realizes his sin. He realizes his situation. He even regrets his sin. And then what we're going to see is he returns home expecting nothing in return from his father. We have the basic mechanics of repentance here. There are three, if if you're like, I don't even know what repentance is or what that looks like. I ain't done that in so long. I'm a little rusty. Well, there are three mechanics that you must have in order to repent. They are confession, contrition, and conversion. And we see each of those here in this passage. So first, the confession of the son. Um, 
we see that in verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, here it is, the confession, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So, this kid has messed up. Bad. Bad. And it's so easy for us when we're in the wrong to do something that's actually more difficult to do. Justify ourselves. We're so prone to justify ourselves and defend ourselves and come up with every single reason. C.S. Lewis says a lot of times whenever we ask God to forgive us, we're not really asking him to forgive us, we're asking him to excuse us. You know, because we'll come up with all of these reasons. Well, yes, I, I probably should not have done that, but you just don't understand the circumstances. If you had just been there, then you would have known how that was. We don't see that with this son. What do we see? I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to tell him, Father, I have sinned. You know what he's saying? I was wrong. Why is that so hard for us to say? It is, though, isn't it? I think of even situations where I've, I've had to say that or should have said that. If you're married, you really know what that's like. If, if you have any close friends, any close relationship with anyone, you know what that's like. You do something, and you're like, ah, you have that first thought, shouldn't have done that. But for some reason, you can't take the thought, shouldn't have done that, and say, I shouldn't have done that. I, I was wrong. I'm sorry. It's real quick, you know? But it's, it's so painful to say. Our pride is just like, no, it's almost like it's pulling the words back in. Like, no, don't say that, no. You will look weak. You're not wrong. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't have said it like that. Maybe you shouldn't have done that. It probably wasn't the best. God will understand, though. It's not that big of a deal. Excuses. No. We've all, we've all heard it, right? The sorry, not sorry. You ever, heard, you ever had a sorry, not sorry apology? Someone like apologizes and you're like, man, the first half of that was excellent. It's like, I really shouldn't, I really, I really should not have, um, I better not give a personal example. I really, <laughs> I really should not have said that. I really should not have done that. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm like, I've already been uh, getting on to my kids in here, and I'm only, like, telling stories on Jude because he's over there and he's not in here, um, but Erica's right here, so um, better not telling myself too much. But we, we do, we know what that's like. It's so much easier to make excuses, it's so much easier to ha give a sorry, not sorry apology, it's so much easier to justify ourselves. C.S. Lewis says this, now, it seems to me that we often make a mistake both about God's forgiveness of our sins and about the forgiveness we are told to offer to other people's sins. I find that when, we, when I think I am asking God to forgive me, I am often in reality asking him to excuse me. But there is all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology. I will never hold it against you, and everything between us will be exactly as it was before. But excusing says, I see that you couldn't help it. Or didn't mean it you really weren't to blame if one was not really to blame then there is nothing to forgive repentance is recognition that we are to blame we are to blame and 
the first step in repenting is confessing that, admitting that. That's why I'm so thankful for Mitch leading us in prayers of confession. It's trying to form in us. This is our response to our sin. We confess it. We admit it, especially to God, because we know how he responds. All right, confession. But the second mechanic of repentance is contrition. If you look at the sun, you know, this is where it's like, this is a parable meant to tell a story about repentance and God's forgiveness. So we don't really want to get too much into the nitty gritty details. But he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's contrition. Now, maybe, maybe he's just upset about the circumstances. I don't know. But this son hates his sin. Can you do me a favor and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7? Turning from your sin requires that you hate your sin. Right? He's in a situation, he's in a land, he's in a place that he doesn't want to be anymore. So he resolves to come home. Um, Repentance is recognizing that your sinful ways, that your sinful lifestyle is not something you want anymore and you begin to hate it and you begin to feel sorrowful over it. And then you leave and you come home. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul contrasts worldly grief from godly grief. And, and that's where, that's all I want to emphasize here is there is a difference between being sorry about the consequences of your sin and being sorry about your sin. Being sorrowful over what's happened to you because of your sin and being sorrowful over the fact that you have sinned against God and that you've sinned against another person. Uh, Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief leads to real repentance. The kind that saves. Real contrition, real remorse over sin. It leads to the kind of repentance that saves because real repentance, real contrition over sin causes us to look for help. You hate where you are. You don't want to be there anymore. Where else can I go? Where else can I look for hope and help? It causes us to look to Jesus in faith. And that's why repentance and faith are two sides of the one coin of conversion. You're not just turning to find a different way, like, oh man, this really didn't work out, let me go figure something else out. No, you're turning and looking to Jesus in faith. In contrition, when you are remorseful over your sin, it leads you to genuinely repent. All right, so confession, contrition, and then the third mechanic of repentance is conversion. We admit our sin, 
We're sorry over our sin, and then we turn from our sin. And so this is marked by the son's willingness to repay what he had squandered. Do you notice this? Look, I don't know if you've ever noticed this in the story. I always focused on, in verse 19, um, in Luke 15, sorry if you're not back there, Luke 15, verse 19, he says, you know, after he says that he's going to confess his sin against God and against his father, he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I always focus on the, well, I'm not worthy anymore. I think that's important. But do you notice what he's going back to do? He's like, I'm not worthy to be your son because I took my inheritance, all of your stuff, your money, and I blew it. I'm not, I don't deserve to be a son anymore, but then he says, just treat me like a servant. There's, there's one aspect of this. He is not expecting anything in return from his father. Anything. He's merely asking to be treated as a servant because he recognizes, I gotta pay you back. I gotta pay you back for this. So, shouldn't there be in a repentant heart, a desire to set things right that you caused to go wrong? There's a desire in us when we sin against someone to make it right. Now, the other person may not demand that of us. They may not demand that of us at all. But our desire on our side of things is we're repenting. We should desire to make things right. Now, that desire with God would leave us crushed because we recognize we could never make it right but this is a far cry from like empty resolutions for change you hear this all the time right of people who hit rock bottom and then they turn to Jesus to try to for, try to hope that Jesus would get them out of that situation and then all of a sudden they don't really care about Jesus anymore foxhole conversions. You've heard about those in history. No, true conversion coming out of true confession and true contrition causes us to turn and run back home expecting nothing in return. When you turn back to a brother against whom, or a sister against whom you have sinned, you don't expect anything of them. You can't control how they respond to you. You can only control how you respond to them. And you should respond to them by saying, I'm willing to make this right. I messed it up. I'm the cause. I'm to blame. No excuses. What can I do? All right. Then there's the response. So we've seen the need for repentance, our sin. We run from God. We've seen the act of repentance itself. The act of repentance is you are not at home and you turn and you run home. And here we have a third point. By his grace, God responds to our repentance with restoration, reconciliation, and rejoicing. God responds to our repentance. God does not have to respond to our repentance, but he does. And God could respond to our repentance with, too bad. I don't care. You have sinned against me. You are in the wrong. And I am just and have every single right 
to punish you for it. But Jesus, through this story, he gives us a picture of how God responds to repentant hearts. And it instructs us how we should respond to repentant hearts. When someone comes to you and repents, there's always that first inclination where you're like, well, 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 you know, and you feel finally justified and you're, you're lifted up now. Oh, are you crawling back to me? There's a scene in the office that is awesome with this, with between Dwight and Michael. It is awesome where Michael basically has Dwight just crawling on his knees. Oh, please, I'll do your laundry for a year. What can I do? And he's like, there's nothing you can do, you know. And we're so tempted to do that when people come back to us. We get that feeling of pride. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody sees it now. I was right. If you think that, then it's your turn to repent. But let's see how God, the only one who actually has every single right to respond to us like that, because he actually is exalted, and we're always in the wrong Let's see how he responds. All right, so verse 20, we have the journey home. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. All right, so just so you're aware, Jesus, is, he knows this as he's writing this. He recognizes that this breaks so many cultural norms for, for a patriarch. Like most grown men in this culture did not run, okay? But especially a land-owning patriarch. He's not running after anybody. You know, the boys would run. Mitchell and I were joking. We were like, I don't, is that really kind of just in that culture? Because I don't run very often either, you know? I don't know. I don't know if grown men in America run very much, except Jim Brown. Um, <laughs> But he breaks this cultural norm out of love and compassion for his son. And he chases him down. He meets him. Now you can only imagine if you're the son, what you're thinking. Oh, this was a mistake. This was a mistake. I'm not even going to make it to the front door. He's going to kill me. I'm done. Can you imagine what the son, his heart must have sunk when he's not met with a knife, you know? He's, he's met with a hug, this embrace. The father, he sees his son coming in the distance and he runs to meet him with deep joy and gladness. He's so happy his son has come back home. He's so happy his son has come back home. And so what we see here in this embrace you know, in verse 21, we see, and the son said to him, he begins, he's like, okay, well, now I gotta give my spiel here. Um, father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I will. But the father said to his servants, enough with this. Bring the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. There are three goals of repentance, both with God as we sin against him and as we turn to him in repentance and faith. He responds to us in three ways, and we should respond to anyone who comes to us and repents in these three ways. First, there's restoration. 
there's restoration. What does the father do? The son's just like, hey, I'll work with the servants. You know, I just don't want to starve to death. I'll work with the servants to pay you back for this. I'm the one who's in the wrong. I don't even deserve to be your son anymore. And the father fully restores him to his place in the family. Bring the robe. Bring the ring. You're still an heir. You're still mine. He restores him to his place in the family. When you turn from your sin, no matter how far you feel away from God that you are, when you turn and return and come home to God, this is how he responds to you. You were created to be his son. You were created to be his daughter. You're the one who left. Guess what? God wants you to return. God empowers you to return. And when you do return, he restores you to your place in his kingdom, to your place in his family. There's full restoration. And here's the deal. When it comes to our own relationships here in the church, When someone repents, we are quick to forgive. And what did Lewis say about forgiveness? It's like nothing happened. Now, are the consequences still there? Sure. Is there pain still there? Absolutely. Is it it hard sometimes to build trust back up? Definitely. And and no one's asking you to be like, see, I repented. You You gotta forgive. You gotta forgive. You gotta forgive. You gotta forgive. No. If we've sinned, we make no demands on anybody. But the goal of someone turning from their sin and returning to you and asking for your forgiveness, the goal is for that relationship to be restored. It may take time because we're both sinners. But the goal is full and complete restoration. And then the second goal is reconciliation. So... So the father, not only does he restore him to his uh, place in the family, which he had left, but there's also this personal reconciliation that you see. You see, this son, as he, as he left, he didn't just leave his place in the family. I mean, he's spurning his dad. He's like, hey, I want my inheritance early. I'm done with you. I'm done with you. But not only does he formally bring him back into the family as an heir, but he is embracing him and kissing him because he's his son and he loves him. There is a reconciled relationship that happens here. When you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, that broken relationship between you and God that exists because of your sin is no more. No more brokenness. It's fully reconciled because of the blood of Jesus shed on your behalf on the cross. Full reconciliation. Nothing in your doing that you have to do. Well, Lord, I'll come back in and I'll, I'll, I'll be a member of your church and I will be faithful and I will do this and I will do that. No. No. You turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus and your relationship with him is reconciled forever. And the same thing should happen with us. It can't be one of these things where it's like, well, yeah, I forgive you, but I'm gonna keep my distance from now on. From now on, again, I'm not going to give you a timetable for reconciliation. It's tough. But that's the goal. That's what you should be pursuing in all of your broken relationships is reconciliation. And then the third, what do we see? 
We don't just see restoration. We don't just see reconciliation. We see rejoicing. You see how happy the father is that his son has come home? Have you ever considered the fact that that's how God feels about you when you come home? That's how he feels about you. When you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus, you look to him in faith. He has this kind of joy over you. Um, in, in one of the earlier parables in, in Luke 15, at the end of the parable of the lost sheep, we read in verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then in verse 10, at the end of the second parable in chapter 15, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is what God wants. He wants you to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, both as an unbeliever and as a believer. And there is joy in heaven, joy in heaven, when you return home. When you repent, there is joy. So, there should be gladness in our hearts when relationships are reconciled. Some of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had in the church so far have been when there has been real pain and real hurt and real sin and real separation, and then we see genuine repentance that results in reconciliation and restoration. And every single time that happens, there is so much joy that happens because we've seen the power of God at work in our lives. So we should be marked by joy as well. Just as our Father in heaven rejoices over us when we turn and come home, so we too should rejoice when we see that happen in each other's lives. Now, Here's a question, though. Why does God respond the way he does to our repentance? We've said he doesn't have to. Is it just in his character? Or maybe a better question is, how can he do that? How? God responds to our repentance with restoration, reconciliation, and rejoicing, not because he's just excusing us. He wouldn't be a good God if he did that. Well, you know, I know it was really bad and you've defamed my glory and everything, but I'm just going to let it go. I'm just going to let it go and let you in. I'll just let it go and let you in. Just, are you sorry? Are you sorry? Say you're sorry. Okay, you can come in. How, how can he do that? How is his justice not profaned when he allows repentant sinners into his kingdom? He's able to do that because the Jesus who inaugurated this kingdom would one day die on a cross. God responds to our repentance with restoration, reconciliation, and rejoicing because Jesus was rejected. Okay, you have this son, right? And he is in misery in this foreign land. And he comes back tattered. We don't know what he was wearing, but we know he needed a robe to be covered up. Okay, he's crying out for help from his father and his father responds with a loving embrace you remember Jesus on the cross when he cries out for help he cries out on the cross and his father rejected him 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that we could be accepted and welcomed into the kingdom by our repentance. Our repentance means nothing if Jesus has not died to atone for our sins. But because he has, every single time we repent or every single time a sinner repents, there is full reconciliation with God. Repentance is, the, is merely the means of receiving the benefits of Christ's atoning sacrifice in our place. So how can we live a life marked by repentance? What can we do? Here's what we need. Here's what we need, because it's, it's really difficult. I'm glad I, I heard agreement here that repentance should mark our lives from our moment of first repentance, the first moment of repentance to our last, until sin is no more. The only time you don't need to repent is when you don't sin. Okay? And, but how do we do it? We're going to need free fatherly love from God. And we get that. Free fatherly love from God. We're going to need free atoning grace from God in Christ. And we get that. And we're going to need the free power of God in his word and in his spirit to quicken us, to equip us to repent. And we get that. Here's the last thing that we need, that we don't always get. We need one another. We need to sharpen one another, and we need to remind one another, and we need to call one another out in our sin, and we need to push one another to repentance. We need to be honest with one another about how we're feeling so that repentance can happen. We need one another to be the kind of people who when we sin, we repent, and when we're sinned against, we forgive. We can't do that on our, on our own. We're too prideful. So let me pray for us. Ask God to help us. Because repentance is not just for those who have never trusted in Jesus. Repentance is for the most seasoned Christian as well. Father, the only way we can confess our sin is if we receive a call from you and we recognize that we have sinned not just against other people but against heaven, against you. Father, we can only be sorry over our sin if you convict us of sin. I pray that you would convict our hearts of sins that we are blind to. And Father, the only way that we can actually turn from our ways and, and come back home is if you change us. You change the disposition of our hearts so that we crave Jesus and not our own way. Father, we need you to do this work in us, not just one time. We need it every single day. I pray that you would do a mighty work in the culture of this church so that we would not just believe right doctrine, but that we would reflect Jesus in the way that we conduct ourselves here at Trace Crossing. I pray that we would be a people of repentance, that we would be quick to repent when we sin, and that we would be confident in doing that because we know 
that those we've sinned against are seeking to reflect your fatherly love for us and that we will forgive. And Father, if we see that, we know what we're going to see. We're going to see restored relationships. We're going to see reconciled relationships. And we're going to have a lot of joy. So I pray that you would work in our pain. And I pray that you would rescue us from ourselves. And if we're far from you, wake us up. Help us to see we're not home. Give us the grace we need to return. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, I want to encourage you to stand and let's respond through song.